He was born on the wrong side of town to a 15-year-old mother. His father had abandoned the family when he was a toddler and his home was in an area of town known colloquially as the battlefield. From day one, he was marginalized, not only because he lived on the wrong side of the tracks, but because he was born with the wrong color of skin near the turn of the century. He lived with his grandma most of his early childhood because his mother had resorted to prostitution to make ends meet. In fifth grade, he had to drop out of school in order to procure odd jobs around town so that he could help his family pay the bills. When he was 11, he snuck his stepfather's gun out on New Year's Eve and fired a blank into the air to celebrate. That resulted in his arrest and being taken away from his family for about 18 months. But an opportunity arose at the Colored Waves Home for Boys, the juvenile facility that he was sent to. This was his second stint there, the first after having been accused of stealing scrap metal from a burned building when he was nine. But this time around, he was taught music. In short order, he became the leader of the home's brass band, which played at parades, parties, and public events. From there, the trajectory of his life changed. When he was eventually released from the home, he started playing on street corners, and then brothels, eventually clubs. Word of his extraordinary musical prowess began to grow. It wasn't long until he was being courted by the best jazz bands in the area, taking lead parts and wowing audiences with his improvised solos. His ability to improvise was one of the driving forces that took jazz out of black clubs and speakeasies. Soon he found himself performing for white audiences. He captured the attention of the mafia and before he knew it, he was headlining their high-class clubs. Far removed from the battlefield in Louisiana, he had taken his form of improvised jazz to New York to the delight of highly influential people, and they loved him. His renown continued to grow and off to Hollywood he went. This Cinderella whirlwind that he was writing had him quickly rubbing elbows with the Hollywood elite. He started making movies with the biggest stars of the time. In fact, he became one of the most recognizable movie stars himself. What a change for a black man from the battlefield. In a society unrepentantly divided by color, he had transcended. The whole world loved him. He was rich. He was famous. And with that, with all that, he still said this. You name the country and we've just about been there. He's talking about his travels with his wife Lucille here. We've been wined and dined by all kinds of royalty. We've had an audience with the Pope. We've even slept in Hitler's bed. But regardless of all that kind of stuff, I've got sense enough to know that I'm still Louis Armstrong, colored. I'm Gabriel Creek, and this is Strange Bedfellows. I had other plans for this second episode, but our nation's on fire. There's an emergency happening right now, and of course it wouldn't be America if there weren't a ton of people and politicians trying to spin it to their advantage. I had planned to dedicate season one to exploring the ways in which faith can make strange bedfellows with various other aspects of life. Episode one was about faith and science, and in the future we'll get back to that. But in this episode, I'm gonna do something that makes me uncomfortable. Because the two things colliding in this episode are racism and me. I mean that literally. I'm gonna talk about me. Why? because it's so easy to point fingers everywhere and say, see, there's the racism problem right over there. I could hit you with stats and figures and say, look, here's what's really going on. 
But we've seen the stats. We know what's happening. But people are so on edge when it comes to matters of race that it's hard to talk about or even bring out without somebody becoming super defensive. Trying to tell somebody that they could do a better job regarding race can be very triggering. So I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to spend the rest of this episode talking about me. I'm going to point out some of the ways in which I've done a good job in regard to race and how that has freed up my conscience to actually do a poor job. So for this episode, I'm just mostly going to talk. I won't be spending a lot of time editing and adding sound bites and music, though there will be a little of that. But my focus is going to be on the message. I'm going to dive into a lot of truth about me and my shortcomings that I don't really relish the idea of shining a light on. And in doing so, I hope there's something that you find that's relatable. A little nugget or two that gives you pause to wonder if there might just be room for improvement for you as well. As usual, I'm going to start from where I sit in the story. Lay my biases straight out on the table so that you know exactly where I'm coming from. The reason why I'm a little nervous is I'm very much on the wrong side of this conversation. If you look at the word privilege in the dictionary, you would probably see a picture of me. I'm just about as accurate a representation of white, male, middle-class Christian America as you can get. I'm the last person in the world who should be posting an I am George Floyd hashtag. I'm not George Floyd. I'm not even close. And try as I might, I have no chance of understanding what it's like to live through all the experiences that are common occurrences for black people. No one has ever tried to citizens arrest me for looking too much like a criminal on my jog. No one has called the police on me when I asked them to leash their dog. Outside of an occasional traffic violation, police have rarely shown interest in me at all, let alone throwing me to the ground and putting their knee on my neck until I'm dead. And that's what makes this hard. I've been largely exempt from having to deal with all this. I'm the wrong guy to be talking about matters of race. But it's also becoming more clear to me that I'm exactly who needs to be talking about race. My social media feed these past few weeks have been all about Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, and that's made it clear to me that I should be talking. But before I jump into that, I want to talk for a minute about moral licensing. I think it'll be pretty obvious why I'm bringing this up. Moral licensing is a psychological term that describes the thing that enables individuals to behave immorally without threatening their self-image of being a moral person. And this is done by building up a sort of a credit by doing things that you're supposed to do and then using that credit to justify when you make, uh, shall we say, unsavory choices. Since they have the credit built up, doing something wrong or inappropriate more or less leaves their moral compass intact. Think about Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby, who both seem to go out of their way to champion the rights of women. They made massive donations to women's organizations and they were intentional about promoting women within their own organizations. And both of them went down for sexual harassment while declaring, but I'm a good person. Moral licensing is a real thing. There's been studies to prove it. One study had two groups of people doing work with a built-in shortcut that did not affect their pay. Both groups were paid the same, but one group was told that the company would make a charitable donation on their behalf, depending on the quality of their work. The group whose work was attached to the charitable donation was 24% more likely to take the shortcut than the group whose quality of work didn't matter. Another study encouraged those on a weight loss diet to think about some of the unhealthy eating choices that they did not make recently. They were essentially made to feel more virtuous about their eating patterns. 
and they also became less likely to hold to their diet by a statistically significant margin. Moral licensing happens every day in my life. Often it's about relatively minor things. You know, I'm pretty good about recycling. So good, in fact, that once in a while I can justify not doing it. Being wasteful in this area is not a big deal. Besides, compared to all the right choices I normally make, this is a pretty small transgression. I can easily justify skipping a jog when I've done some exercise recently. I'm pretty sure I did that just today. And who among us hasn't justified eating a slice of cake by reassuring ourselves that we otherwise have done a great job this week? So in other words, when I'm confident that I've behaved well in the past and my actions demonstrate self-control or compassion or generosity, I'm statistically more likely to explain away the acts that are selfish or bigoted or thoughtless rather than be remorseful about them. And all of this leads me to one more study that I'd like to pay particular attention to. In 2008, Stanford University conducted a story on moral licensing and race. They asked participants in the study whether a black person or a white person would be more qualified to handle a specific job. The studied participants were all supporters of Barack Obama for president. Then they were split into two groups. Group one was known to have supported Obama, while group two was not allowed to make that information public. The study's conclusion, and I'm quoting here, the opportunity to endorse Barack Obama made individuals subsequently more likely to favor whites over blacks. In other words, when allowed the opportunity to leverage a little street cred for supporting Obama, they were free to let their more unconscious biases take over. Why would that be the case? Moral licensing. Moral licensing is how I can watch the injustices of racism all around me and be upset and still be part of the problem. It's how I can have black friends enthusiastically welcome black neighbors to my block, be a ravenous fan of athletes, movie stars, and musicians who are black, and still not feel bad that I use my socio-political choices to keep systematic racism in place. Moral licensing is why Louis Armstrong can be at the pinnacle of his career, the literal definition of defying the odds, a success by every measure, and still be afraid of the people who adore him. And it's how I can be appalled at obvious injustice. I can fill my social media with messages condemning recent events. I can append every post in my feed with hashtags like I am George Floyd and I run with Ahmad and never acknowledge that it's also my knee on George Floyd's neck. Whoa, 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 hold up there, buddy. It was all good until now, but suddenly I'm trying to make you the bad guy? No, no, I'm not. I'm trying to make me the bad guy. You? Well, you keep listening and draw your own conclusions about you. Here, let me tell you a little bit more about me. I have never considered myself racist, ever. The idea makes me feel physically ill. What might be a little telling, though, is how I'd prove that if I was confronted with the idea. Without hesitation, I'd offer all the same reasons that you hear all the time when white people are confronted with that term. These are, in fact, the responses you hear back from almost every racist person when you inform them that they are indeed racist. Inevitably, it starts right here. Now, these next several statements are true about me, which is what makes them so deceptive. It starts here. I have black friends. I mean, hey, I've had friends of all the colors. I mean, good friends, great friends even. I'm talking about the sort of friends who, when the apocalypse hits, I know I can seek them out and they will receive me with love and without reservation. There's no way I can be part of the problem with credentials like that. Then you move on. 
I have never, ever physically hurt a black person for any reason at all, let alone a reason having to do with hate. And of course, I'm justifiably horrified when other people do it. When a black person approaches me, I don't automatically assume their motives are questionable. Quite the contrary. I am excited to make their acquaintance and possibly make a new friend. And okay, anybody who knows me knows that I am not that extroverted, but still. And lastly, you hear this a lot. I don't see color. This is me speaking. It's true. I honestly don't. And this is where I realize that I've probably done a disservice to my friends of color in the black community at large. Because when I don't see the color of their skin, I'm blinded to all the experiences that are part and parcel to being them. When I look at someone and assume they're just like me, I dismiss everything that they've experienced in their lives and replace it with my own experiences. And that is exactly how I become complicit in enabling the systematic racism that in turn enables all the racism from people who simply don't realize that they've been indoctrinated with racist tendencies, all the way up to blatantly racist hate groups. It makes me blind and tolerant to the injustices that are built into society. Let me approach this a different way. I just gave a list of all the ways that I can justify my thinking that I'm a great ally for black people. But let me give you a different list of things that I haven't done. I've never used my vote specifically to ensure that black people are treated equally by the policies that the candidates want to enact. After I've already cast my vote, I've never contacted my representative to let them know that I'm not satisfied with the state of society, especially when there are flashpoint moments that can really galvanize public opinion. I have never attended a peaceful demonstration to support my black friends and family. I've never donated to an organization that's dedicated to fighting systemic racism. Outside of some occasional social media activism where I forward a post or include a pithy hashtag, I've never intervened in a situation where blatant racism was on display. And worst of all, I've never felt bad about any of this, because in my mind, I've built up all the right credentials to conclude that I'm not a racist. Moral licensing, once you see it, it's a cruel mistress. There are so many I've nevers in this category that I can't possibly list them all. But this isn't I never the popular drinking game. This is, I never, but I should have. It was literally my responsibility to. If I'm being honest, I've only really acknowledged racism in a way that suggests that it's a problem on the fringes of society. Unfortunate incidences that are heart-wrenching, but the exception rather than the norm. But more and more I'm realizing that that's a perspective that comes from my privilege. Uh-oh. I just used the P word. Among the middle-class white male set, nothing as contentious as the idea of privilege. White males in particular trigger at the idea that they didn't have to work hard to get to where they are today. Which is not what privilege is saying at all. That's not even close. Privilege just suggests that there are ways that I have a leg up compared to some other people. Think about Michael Phelps for a second. Yes, that Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympian of all times. I realize it's weird to bring him up in this context, but stick with me for a minute. Even among elite swimmers, his body seems to have been custom designed to glide through water. He has disproportionately large feet, short legs, a long torso, and at 6'4", his wingspan is that of a 6'7 person. What that means is that he and I could, conceivably, go through all of the same training, put in all the same hours, have the same dedication to the sport, 
and he still has a built-in advantage over me. That's a lot like how privilege works. And yet, no one questions his hard work or the legitimacy of his accomplishments when these stats come up. Why do my peers get so defensive when their privilege is pointed out? I don't know. But I don't want to get sidetracked by going too far down the privilege debate rabbit hole. Maybe I'll save that for another episode down the road. Let's put it this way. Among those who think that privilege is a real thing, I think it's pretty universally agreed that my demographic of Christian white middle-class male is among the most privileged groups in the current state of modern society. But here's my spin. Just go with me on this for a minute. Whenever the subject of my privilege comes up, it's almost always in the context of someone trying to remind me of how good I have it, coupled with my lack of awareness and appreciation thereof. It's used to distance me from the hardship around me. Don't bother, Gabe. You'll never be able to understand what I've been through. And honestly, that's probably true. But what if my privilege makes me the perfect ally in the fight against systemic racism? Seriously, what if it does? Hear me out. Black people have been fighting this fight since before America was a nation. There have been every manner, means, and method to try to bring attention to the problem. There have been peaceful protests, violent protests, literal wars, public service announcements, movies, books, TV shows, stories, sit-ins, walkouts, inspirational speakers, standing, kneeling, you name it, and none of it has ever been considered the right approach or the right timing. Why? Because there's never a convenient time to talk about racism. And unless you're the one experience it, no one wants to admit that there's a problem. After all, this is all stuff that we congratulated ourselves for fixing in the 60s. No need to rehash it all again, right? Let's cut back to Michael Phelps for a second. He can't do anything about his physical advantages in swimming. He has the upper body of a basketball player, the legs of a toddler, and the feet of Sasquatch, all of which work in concert to reduce his drag coefficient in the water. There's very little he can do to change that. He can't really use his built-in advantage to bring bodily equality to swimmers everywhere. But me? My privilege isn't genetic. It's not some God-given right. I was just born in the right place and time for this advantage to be thrust on me. I did nothing to deserve it, but I can weaponize it in the fight for equality. Think about it. The black community can't catch a break. No matter when they try, society says that the timing's not right. No matter what they do, the nation complains that the method is wrong. On the other hand, I face none of that. I can talk about racism freely and no one questions my timing. I can point at something and say, this is wrong, and my voice stands a great shot of being heard without people dismissing me as ungrateful. So what if I took my privilege and whatever advantage that gave me and intentionally directed it towards a goal of getting everyone on equal footing? Especially if it's not just me, but it's hundreds, I mean thousands of people doing it. When swimming through the trappings of society, I'm Michael Phelps. I have a built-in reduced drag coefficient. It's high time I use it. But how? I've just spent the last however long telling you all about how all my precepts are wrong, how I've moral licensed away my guilt, and how I've privileged my way above the fight. How does a white guy like me get involved? I don't know. Depending on where one looks or who one talks to, the answers change. Which makes sense because I'm talking about human beings here and we're a complicated set. When someone is sad, sometimes they want you to be there without saying anything. That's good. I'll do it. When someone's angry, they may want you to just leave them the hell alone. Absolutely. I will keep my distance. 
When someone is frustrated, they may just want to talk. Amazing. I'm here for you. When someone is tired, they might want help. You bet. Show me what to do. But in this case, when someone is actually a lot of someone's, and they're all of those emotions and want all those things all at once, it's a lot harder. It makes for some real confusion for people like me who are just now trying to get involved. So let me tell you what I'm going to do to navigate those waters. First, I'm diving in. Now. I'm not waiting until I have a convenient moment or perfect clarity. I have enough to get started and figure it out as I go. I have to start somewhere. I'm going to pick a spot. Anywhere. Half the battle is just in the starting. So I have to decide that I'm going to put one foot in front of the other. Some wise person said, if you want to be a better painter, paint. If you want to be a better thrower, throw. I want to be a better ally. So I'm going to do that by being an ally. Now. Second, I'm going to keep my focus. Ever so often something happens that reminds me that racism has been and continues to be an issue in the United States. It captures my attention for a moment, but then something happens and my attention gets diverted. Keeping my focus requires an effort on my part. When something terrible happens, it's a reminder to stay focused. Tragic events are going to be politicized almost immediately. Stay focused. People are going to make bad choices in response. Stay focused. Bad and malicious players are going to appear out of nowhere and try to pull attention. Stay focused. People are going to remind me of how far we've come. Stay focused. People are inevitably going to point out that there are other injustices in the world that also need to be fixed. Stay focused. Racism is the root cause. All that other stuff is just the noise that racism makes. It's there to distract from the real issue. I'm making a conscious decision that racism is worthy of my undivided attention. Third, I'm going to start to root out my own visceral reactions that aren't productive. Let me use the phrase, Black Lives Matter, as an example of what I mean. When this phrase first gained traction, my gut reaction was that all lives matter. And of course that's true, but it's not a response that's constructive or helpful in any way. I'll compare it to my family. I have six siblings, so for those needing help with the math, that's seven kids total. My dad is exceptional at telling us that he loves us. Sometimes he addresses his love and pride toward the lot of us. And that's nice, and I appreciate it. But that's nothing compared to those times when he looks me directly in the eye and says, Gabe, my son, I love you, and I am proud of you. And with some reframing and dealing with my own issues, that's what Black Lives Matter means to me. Yes, all lives matter. No one's questioning that. But Black Lives Matter is my opportunity to get more personal, to stop addressing the whole of humanity and say in a much more intimate way, my black friends... I see you. You matter to me. And so far, my action plan is more philosophy than action. So number four, I'm going to take action. There are a lot of resources out there on the internet, in books, even just discussing amongst your friends that have a lot of practical steps that can help. Everything from small changes in habits to volunteer efforts to giving money. An easy spot to start is giving money to organizations that are already equipped to take this battle to the front lines. There are plenty to choose from and anything helps. If a million people donated one dollar, I'll let you do the math on that. It's substantial. As a practical step, I'm also going to listen, really listen to those around me who have lived this reality from day one. 
I'm not going to argue or mince their words. I'm going to hear, and I'm going to let it into my heart and mind and let it change me. And finally, I'm going to allow myself to fail. Failure has a bad rap, but it's actually a great tool. Because if I fail, that means that I tried. And trying is the opposite of doing nothing. So I accept that I'm going to do it wrong. I mean, I've probably already done it wrong just in the course of this episode. I need to accept that this is not my comfort zone and failure will likely be par for the course. I expect it. I accept it. My brothers and sisters in the black community will probably expect it as well. They'll keep me on track. 2020 has been a roller coaster. I don't think that there is anyone who has not been negatively affected by it. For the black community at large, the effect has been disproportionate. Not only have there been horrible incidents in the news cycle that highlight fundamental racism, but the state of things has highlighted our built-in systematic racism. Because the state of affairs is such that a higher proportion of black people hold the types of jobs that are considered essential, they've been disproportionately affected by coronavirus having both a higher infection rate and a higher mortality rate than the community as a whole. Because on average they have a lower economic status, the black community has been less able to take certain precautions like many of the rest of us, like social distancing and working from home. I recently sat in a webinar in which several black pastors from my area were discussing racism. One of the questions that they were asked was how they feel right now. Each of them discussed a whole range of emotions as they processed everything differently but I noticed that every single one of them mentioned one thing in common. They were tired. This has not been a battle. This has been a war. And the last several months of this war have been exceptionally bad. The black community needs some time to rest. They need time to heal. They need time to mourn. And for that to happen, I need to pick up what I can of the load they're carrying. The thing about Louis Armstrong is that he very rarely opened his mouth in defiance of racism. He had a very carefully cultivated image of a smiling, happy, congenial man. But he also loved, of all things, tape recorders. After his death in 1971, they discovered thousands of hours of recordings. It's in those recordings that we see that he was livid at the state of affairs. He didn't do or say anything publicly because he was afraid. He said, and I'm quoting, my life is my music. They would beat me on the mouth if I marched, and without my mouth, I wouldn't be able to blow my horn. They would beat Jesus if he was black and marched. He knew that he had one thing going for him, and that was his ability to play the trumpet, and he was too afraid to risk that. But in his life, he saw all the injustices. Police beating protesters in Selma, Alabama with billy clubs and whips. The assassination of Dr. King, apartheid in Africa the bombings of black churches in Birmingham. The list of he witnessed goes on and on, and it's not pretty. And yet, with all of that, in 1967, just four years before he died, he recorded this song. And the thing is, he really sounds like he means it. Some of you young folks been saying to me, hey pops, what you mean? What a wonderful world. How about all them walls all over the place? You call them wonderful? And how about hunger and pollution? They ain't so wonderful either. But how about listening to old Pops for a minute? Seems to me it ain't the world that's so bad. 
but what we are doing to it and all I'm saying is see what a wonderful world it would be if only we'd give it a chance love baby love that's the secret yeah if lots more of us loved each other we'd solve lots more problems and man this world would be a desert that's why old pops keeps saying I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue. Clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky. Also on the faces of people going by, I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They learn much more.